Well, good evening, friends, and welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. Tonight we have a special guest with us, Mike Duracy from the International Marian Research Institute. Uh, you'll correct me, Michael, if I've pronounced that wrong, but uh, Michael is uh, with us this evening to talk about Mary in film, although when we met earlier, uh, or actually it was late last week, Michael, to discuss this, we agreed we'd probably talk about a larger landscape than just Mary in film. Uh, we uh, touched on a number of subjects around Catholic culture, uh, the Church, uh, the life of Jesus, which is well represented in the research that you've done in this topic. Uh, but I want to start with a, a simpler question. Of course, we'll begin with prayer. Uh, but just to give you a, a thought to think about, I want to explore a little bit your uh, interest in pursuing the degree in Mariology uh, that led to your research. But let's begin, if we if we can, as we do each week, with prayer. And I'm going to begin with the St. Michael prayer this week. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits who prowl about this world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Now I start with that prayer, Michael, because... uh, One, I believe, uh, as we discussed last week, that our culture is somewhat under attack. And film is simply one of those mediums where we can see both the good and the bad. And you took a considerable amount of time in pursuit of your sacred uh, degree in sacred theology, a licentian sacred theology, uh, studying this particular medium. I'm interested what drew you into that particular uh, field of study. Well, from uh, the time I was young, I guess I would always say that I was something of a, a film buff. In fact, on my first job, I happened to run into another fellow. He came from California, and he was something of a film buff, so I think we helped encourage each other in our interest in film, and so we would uh, watch foreign films and classic films and things like that beyond just the normal fare you'd see on a weekend at the local theaters. So uh, I had an interest in film uh, a lot longer than I had an interest in uh, religious film or Marian film. And in fact, my interest in Mary uh, didn't start real early. I I grew up in a Catholic family. I thought my parents are are very good Catholics. The whole family uh, became good practicing Catholics, and I was, was raised in that environment and picked it up. But it wasn't until after I uh, got out of college, you know, I was uh, on my first job, that the parish priest was finally able to talk me into saying the rosary on a regular basis. And uh, once I I picked that up, once I started as a habit, it changed my whole life. And I uh, developed a strong devotion to the Virgin Mary, and uh, it led me to the Marian Research Institute. And once I was there, I had to pick a specialty, it turned out uh, they'd already done some uh, background research in the topic of Marian film. The fellow who directed my thesis had actually given a talk on Marian film at an international Mariological Congress. So I actually kind of uh, followed in line and picked it up from there. And I know something about your studies uh, for the benefit of our audience members who may or may not know the licentia in sacred theology is not an insignificant undertaking. Uh, tell us a little bit about your study and the program that you went through before we get into the films specifically. Okay, well, the program I went through is called the International Marine Research Institute, and it is a, a postgraduate program at a pontifical institute that offers the Catholic theological degrees. So a person gets a degree in Catholic theology at the postgraduate level, The two degrees that they offer are the STL, which stands for Sacred Theology Licentiate, and the Sacred Theology Doctorate, the STD, which is the terminal degree. It's sort of like a Ph.D. at that point. Uh, The STL is a a postgraduate degree, so in that extent it's sort of like uh, a Ph.D. too, but it's not the terminal degree. Before one starts preparing for that, one has to have a certain background, and I actually received my M.A., my Master of Arts in Religious Studies, at the University of Dayton. 
And we're kind of fortunate that the University of Dayton uh, offers a Marian concentration to get the uh, MA in Religious Studies. There are a number of other concentrations you could get, but that's one that they offer, and you can actually get your feet wet taking several of the courses uh, at the uh, Institute before one goes on. Yeah, I I confess, as you well know, because we've had the discussion, I've looked very closely at that particular program, and I do find it intriguing. I also find it a little daunting, to be honest with you. So I have great respect for what you've accomplished, and and I want to draw on that wisdom here this uh, on this program, of course, we're in the month of May, the month of our Blessed Mother. What a special time to be having a discussion about the role of Mary in film. And as I say, in a larger context, uh, culture, our culture, uh, the culture of, of, of entertainment, we want to discuss, and, and where the Church has played out in that. I want to begin with one of the films that you identified in the paper that I had the great pleasure to read, and that's uh, Cecil B. DeMille's The King of Kings, you say later in the paper you think this is the finest representation in the silent film era uh, of the Catholic theme, or at least a religious theme. Tell us a little bit about why you why you come to that conclusion. Well, I still stand by what I said about that film, and actually people may not realize it now, but saying that this is probably the best of all the films made in the uh, silent era on the life of Christ is saying quite a bit. We're, we're probably talking about over a hundred films uh, made all over the world uh, during that first uh, thirty years uh, of the birth of cinema, and it actually developed as uh, an independent, important genre. You know, like like the action film is now, or uh, historical fiction, or or the war picture. These are important genres now, uh, or at, at different times in film history. And uh, the Bible film and the film of the life of Christ was a very important genre in those early days for the, maybe that first 30 years. And so they were made all over the world, and uh, I'm sure there's over a hundred of them all together. And I, I would say this stands out as the best of the lot. Um, I could say that for a number of reasons. One, it comes at the very end of the period when the uh, audio technology for sound in the theaters had already been developed. So, you know, the, the silent air is really at its peak. It's, it's, uh, it's ripe now, and, and then the, the genre, the industry is going to move on in another direction. Right. But this is kind of the crest of the silent film period. You're also dealing with a very important director who had done other things besides the religious films, although I think he's better known uh, for the two uh, religious epics he did, uh, King of Kings, which was a silent film in the early days, and then in the 50s, The Ten Commandments. So we're talking about Cecil B. DeMille. But I think the thing that uh, makes it stand out is the acting, specifically the acting of the fellow who played Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's kind of universally acknowledged as a very very intriguing kind of Christ, a very approachable kind of Christ, a very likable kind of Christ, a very human kind of Christ, who's still uh, extremely devout and uh, and pious and... um, gives us a portrayal that one could believe that he's also the Son of God, but without losing that human touch. And that's something that gets lost in a lot of films that present Jesus, that he uh, he's really very detached and uh, a very pious um, and... Uh, unapproachable. Un- unapproachable is the word I was right. looking for. Yeah. I, I can think of a couple exceptions to that, but in this early period, this one with uh, H.B. Warner playing Jesus Christ, and other people might recognize him as Mr. Gower from mm-hmm. It's a Wonderful Life. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the same actor. Yeah. I can mention a couple other exceptions, which are probably worth doing. In Jesus of Nazareth, I thought Robert Powell uh, did an exceptional job. And then one that's not as well known, because it was an independent thing done by evangelicals, uh, Matthew. And that's uh, the entire Gospel of Matthew uh, done using the Gospel of Matthew as the script for the dialogue. I do want to touch on one subject quickly that we discussed, and we'll come back to it, I think, a little later in our discussion. And that was the imposition of the Hayes Production Code in, I think, 1934, if I have that correct. Uh, I couldn't tell you the exact year, but we're talking early 30s. Early 30s, 30s, yeah. Um, What were the production codes, the Hayes production codes, what did that impose on the industry? 
Okay. Well, I'm going to have to try and summarize this without having the document in front of me. But the same sort of concerns that uh, come up even in modern times were actually recognized in earlier times, uh, that people were concerned about the effects that uh, watching films could have on young people. Okay, uh, there, there was uh, you know a lot of violence. Uh, in fact, there were a lot of crime dramas that that were coming on in the twenties, and uh, there were some studies uh, that showed that uh, they could have a bad influence on young people. And so uh, people would go to the legislature and say, "We we really need to do something about this. We need to regulate these things uh, for the good of the, the young people, for the good of society." And so uh, it got to a point where the government was pressing the industry for some reforms, and they they came to a compromise where the movie industry agreed to pretty much police itself. And the norms that they used for the policing were what were called the Hayes Production Code. And uh, the effect of it was very different from what we have in our modern times, that they actually were preventive measures, okay, they were norms that were imposed upon films before they were released to the public. So even though they didn't have ratings the way we have them now, what they effectively had was a system which made sure that only G-rated films were released to the public. So that's what the uh, Hayes Production Code did. And it did have some norms regarding uh, religion. For example, one was not permitted uh, to portray a minister in an in, uh, uh, poor light. Yeah, of course that's gone now, isn't it, Michael? We uh, we have a rash of films of late that uh, don't hold themselves, we think, to uh, any particular standard. I realize there are standards that we're uh, held to, but nonetheless, uh, you would think uh, with some of the the films that have been produced and the way that either lit, uh, religion or or uh, Christian themes, Catholic themes are portrayed, uh, that there really aren't standards today in in some of what we see. It's unfortunate where we've come from. Yeah, uh, the old system was a, a preventive system, that there were standards and they were in place. Uh, the new system is um, more of a, a reaction. I guess it was the difference between being proactive and being reactive. So the, the system that's in place now is a set of ratings to allow one to react to what one is exposed to in the theater. Right. So one one uh, is getting some advance warning or some advance notice about what kinds of things one's going to be exposed to, and they have a similar uh, rating system that applies to television programming now. Yeah. And uh, then it's up to the uh, the audience to uh, decide on how to deal with it. But I, I would say that it's uh, kind of the difference between being proactive and being reactive. And in other fields like business, one knows that there are, are problems with the latter approach. Right, right. Despite that, there are uh, still a laundry list of very good films that we could talk about. And I want to go back to a couple that were in your paper, some that I personally remember. In fact, some I've seen as recently as uh, the last few weeks. Uh, the first is The Song of Bernadette. Um, I, I'm wondering if you have insight on this. How did the church respond to that film? Because it wasn't a, a church-mandated, if you will, or overseen film although I think you indicated to me that many of these films that dealt with uh, what, what might be viewed as sensitive Catholic themes, we're talking about visions here or uh, apparitions and so forth, they may be sensitive, uh, that many of the production uh, efforts the director uh, uh, would ask for a Catholic consultants on board the production staff. Is, is that true of the Song of Bernadette, or do you know? I don't recall that of the Song of Bernadette. We we talked about the Mills film, King of yeah, Kings, and yeah. that was the case with his. In fact, is a, a fellow that's probably a lot of people in the audience might recognize the name Daniel Lord, mm-hmm. a Jesuit, and he, he's actually pum- published a number of things that are still in print. And so he was the uh, the religious consultant. And uh, he brought uh, a certain authenticity to the thing. For example, there's a scene where um, Jesus is uh, is writing in the ground with the woman uh, caught in adultery. And uh, the words on the ground are actually Hebrew words yeah, that, wow. that correspond to the things that are translated in English uh, wow. on the screen. So clearly that must have come from the theological consultant. DeMille wasn't Catholic, and he certainly wasn't a theology major or yeah. a Bible scholar. Yeah. Well, the Song of Bernadette, I thought, was not only a good production, wonderful acting. Uh, I, I thought it was very true and consistent with uh, the historical uh, storyline, if you will. 
uh, and I think holds today a, a great deal of popularity in Catholic circles, doesn't it? I've seen it myself, and I like it myself. I, I recommend it. Uh, one can still see it, for example, on American movie classics mm-hmm. from time to time. It, yeah. It's not hard to get on uh, VHS or DVD. You mentioned the acting, and, uh, of course, the, the primary actress was uh, Jennifer Jones playing the visionary, and uh, she was actually the uh, best female actress that year. Yeah. That, uh, that, that won her the award for yeah. that film. Yeah, significant, I think, that uh, Hollywood recognized uh, in, in the context of that particular genre what a wonderful job she did. Uh, in another film, The Miracle of Our Lady of Fatima, uh, you talked about in your paper the fact that this also had a political uh, um, sort of undertone to it. Uh, talk about that a little bit, the anti-communist message that, that some can take away from that. Okay, well, as soon as I tell people that was made in the early 1950s, uh, probably some of that is going to become apparent. And I think you can see parallels between uh, the uh, political oppression, uh, the religious oppression by the political leadership and uh, the perceived uh, potential threat to religion from uh, atheistic communism uh, one can see the parallel there. I, I don't think they really went out of their way to make it very explicit. Uh, I mean, the uh, actually the people that um, the historical figures that were uh, perpetuating this persecution against the young children and and the other Catholics in Portugal, they they really were those kinds of militant uh, atheist uh, uh, characters that. Uh, one might fear in uh, spreading out from the uh, the communist revolutions. But uh, I wouldn't say the movie really went out of its way to present that. But I think in the 1950s, with the, the Red Scare, as we talk about, and the, uh, the hearings in Congress at the time, that uh, people would have picked up on the parallels pretty easily. Yeah. There are a couple other films uh, that, that go together. One you shared with me, one I had seen myself before, the uh, Therese of, uh, of Lazou films, the more recent one, which came out just a few years ago. I have had the advantage of seeing that, and uh, I can share with you that some observations about the film, though just, it, it, it you know, portrayed a very wonderful uh, image and message about Therese, there was some of that uh, uh, dynamic that we talked about earlier, almost uh, portraying her as unapproachable. She's so pious, she's so holy, in fact, her entire family. Uh, so so much in that, uh, you know, Catholic vein and living out their devotions that it almost seemed unapproachable. I remember a friend of mine saying, well, if that's, you know, what we're aspiring to, I'm, I'm already out of the game. <laughs> you know, my family doesn't live that way. And so I know there was some reaction to that. I watched the film that you shared with me, The Old Black and White, and I don't know the year. You can maybe remind me. I think it was 1959. Okay, 59. And I have to say, I liked that film better. Now, uh, you indicated it was a French film, and of course, uh, with subtitles, but uh, nonetheless... uh, Oh, no, I'm sorry, it was dubbed. It was dubbed. It was the other film you loaned me that was subtitled. Um, But what I liked about it was they portrayed the pious nature of Therese, but they also showed her very human side, the weakness, the response to uh, her, her father in this Christmas where he, he says, well, thankfully we won't have to put the gifts in the shoe next year. She'll have grown past that. And her very emotional reaction to it. In addition, uh, once she's in the convent, she demonstrates both this humility, but nonetheless a great interior strength uh, in, in defense of uh, so many challenges from the Mother Superior about the way that she's conducting herself uh, she doesn't attempt to defend herself, but she does, um, you know, quote the gospel many times in terms of what her responsibility is to uh, live up to expectations with regard to her desire, expressed desire, to pursue sainthood. I thought that was a wonderful image uh, for that movie. Well, I think you really picked up on one of the central themes of that particular film. It is a French film, came out in 1959, I believe, and it goes by the title of The Miracle of Saint-Thérèse. But I think that theme of uh, trying to battle between uh, the humility that's needed to become a saint uh, and the uh, lofty aspirations of sainthood that that really uh, can predispose one to to a certain kind of dangerous pride, Uh, that's that's a central theme in the film. 
And I think it helps us understand uh, the uh, kind of dis- rigid discipline that is imposed on her in the course of that film. I think maybe to a modern audience that isn't used to uh, that kind of discipline from its leadership, being imposed from its leadership, that would really jump out at people. And it would say, pe- people really acted like that then? And, uh, well, yes, they did, and, and people understood what the point was. I mean, actually, it still happens now, like with professional sports teams, where the coach uh, wants to get the best result and, and has to impose some discipline in order to get it. Right. Uh, but uh, I think for an audience now, they they wouldn't uh, they would be rather stunned to see the the discipline imposed on Therese. But I think it dovetails with that major theme of of how it's trying to help her develop uh, without cultivating an unhealthy kind of pride. Right. And there was also that wonderful scene with her and the priest who was being reassigned to Southeast Asia, and she expresses her desire to to. Uh, go with him and to participate in, in missionary work, but having already acknowledged that she would not be able to do that because of her physical condition, uh, she shares with him, well, you will be a missionary in, in uh, effectively in person, whereas I will be a missionary of prayer, and, and I will support you continuously through that. And the strength that she reveals, the acceptance of her position, first of all, but the strength and the, the adamacy of her position, no, I am a missionary, I'm a missionary in the fullest extent, of course, this is very consistent with Carmel's theme of contemplative prayer and action. We combine the two, but we don't minimize the significance of the, the contribution that our prayers make, uh, even when uh, they may be only in support of those who are in a more active vein, in this case, a missionary. Well, I found that particular scene uh, quite moving myself. And uh, just by coincidence, within this past week, I received a, a mail something in the mail from the Bishop of uh, Alaska, and they were just asking for uh, contributions to support the diocese, but they made a point of saying that St. Therese de Lisieux was the uh, patron of the Alaskan missions. (laughs) And and I think that makes the point. I mean, she she never left anywhere. She she hardly left her sickbed. And in fact, if uh, we've both seen that film, it's it's very moving, the the fact that she has great difficulty just moving around uh, the convent, just getting up and down the stairs. And it's very moving to watch that on the film. And of course, in the end, she's confined to a wheelchair, uh, not able to move. But uh, the Church recognizes that she was a missionary, that she was a successful missionary. Yeah, and and a powerful uh, message, this one of uh, her physical... um uh, incapacity uh, later in the film. Of course, she's a young person, so uh, it must have been particularly challenging for her uh, to have to sustain that that trial and her, her inability to perhaps go do the things she really wanted to do, but accepting God's will and, and, and fulfilling her role and doing so in a masterful way to the point where, of course, today we recognize her for the doctor of the church that she is and the wonderful message she has in her little way. You know, when we come back from the break, I want to uh, talk just briefly about uh, a recent series of films of, I believe, an eight uh, series, uh, uh, eight film series on Teresa of Avila, which I am familiar with. And I think you indicated you hadn't seen it yet, but uh, I thought it was terrific. And then I want to go back to some of the Italian directors and and cover some of the films that they have uh, produced for us over the years and some of the messages that are hidden in those films as well. I want to remind you, you're listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. Our guest this evening is Michael Durisi, and we're talking about Mary in film. Please join us when we come back from the break.
Well, hello again, listeners, uh, and, and welcome back. I, I want to reiterate my invitation. Well, Michael, before we broke, we were talking about the, uh, and again, I'm, I'm going from memory, but I think it was an eight-series, uh, uh, eight-film series on Teresa of Avila, uh, which I had the opportunity to view this past year, and I thought it was wonderful. This is Carmelite conversation, so we have to bring our uh, Carmel perspective to it, but I would strongly advocate for our listeners, if they haven't had the opportunity, I know this is available in a number of libraries for rental, but also uh, in many Catholic bookstores and uh, through Ignatius Press it can be found. In fact, I'm looking at the pamphlet now. Uh, I thought this was a wonderful series of films that demonstrated it was done in Spanish, so of course it's with subtitles, and that's a, a challenge perhaps, but um, I thought it was just a wonderful film portraying the life of Teresa the challenges that she had to overcome, and of course we can read about this in her own book, The Life, uh, and in so many of her other books we are doing a series on the interior castles we've done, The Way of Perfection, and so much of her personal life is brought out in each of those uh, books, although she attempts to hide it by indicating it's someone else she's writing about. We of course know it's Teresa herself. Uh, But this series of films I thought really brought to life um, the trials, the struggles, and the role of prayer in Teresa's life, the significance that prayer played for her in helping her overcome the constant obstacles and challenges that she had to overcome in her life to establish uh, uh, both the, uh, the uh, missions that, that she established and also the reform which she led of the Carmelite Order along with St. John of the Cross. Uh, so I, I strongly advocate it. I, I, think you indicated you have not seen it. I have yet. not seen it, but my uh, fiancé happens to be a film scholar, and uh, she tells me she's seen it and uh, thinks it's a wonderful film that she would recommend. Yeah, I, I would strongly recommend it, not just the Carmelites, of course, but anybody um, anybody struggling with prayer, anybody struggling with the challenges that we all face. I, re- I really thought it was a wonderful series. I want to go back to, as I indicated we would, some of the Italian directors, and let me talk first about uh, Pier Paolo Pasolini's The Gospel According to Matthew. What I thought was interesting in your paper, and then I'm going to pick up on it again in, in the next film we discuss, specifically the role of the Blessed Mother, and a particular scene in that film that uh, Pasolini handles, and that's the question uh, uttered by Jesus, who is my mother? How, how does the uh, character of Mary respond to that particular uh, question? Okay, well, uh, this is a pretty important uh, gospel text. Uh, it's considered, or, or it's often said to be, an anti-Marian text. It, it uh, makes an opposition between Jesus' eschatological family, you know, the people he's united with before the Father by their faith, uh, and his biological family, and not only his, his mother, who's his only blood relative, but other nearly related relatives with some some blood, you know. And uh, they're the ones on the outside trying to get in, and then Jesus says, well, I have to deal with my, my real family first. And uh, in this film, uh, Mary is, is kind of hurt by that. You, you can see it on her face and her expressions, and, and probably historically um, it, it might have been like that. Uh, but as uh, Pasolini lets the film go on, and Jesus is explaining how uh, what's really important is doing the will of the Father, well, a light comes on for Mary, and she says, "Yes, yes, I agree with this too. I, I'm, I'm with you. I understand what you're trying to teach me. Me too, trying to teach us all, and trying to teach me." And this is uh, portrayed just in her facial reaction, or does she actually utter the words? No, no, no words. It's all just uh, in her reaction. Just yeah. in, and, of course, uh, that's the power of film, isn't it? That the spoken word or the written word can't always convey in the same way. This idea, uh, I'm always struck by. <laughs> Uh, a particularly uh, uh, favorite film of mine, Casablanca. There's, uh, th- there are some religious themes I know, and I'm sure you could school me on them in, in greater detail. But I'm always struck by the uh, scene where uh, uh, Bogart walks back into the uh, bar and sees uh, Ingrid Bergman for the first time, realizes she's in town, and the, the look on his face is remarkable. And it, it takes a great actor for, to portray that. Something that no written word could have done as much as I appreciate the written word. Um, and in this case, I think uh, you're indicating this is the only way this message could have been conveyed. Mary's consent, Mary's acceptance, Mary's willingness, their acknowledgement uh, portrayed in film that, yes, you're the Savior, you're the Messiah, you may be my, my son, but, but I consent to uh, 
my position, if you will, my role in salvation history, and all of that portrayed through these uh, visual images as opposed to the spoken word. Well, I interpreted the scene for you uh, with words, and of course people don't have the benefit of seeing the scene while we're describing it, but it does speak for itself, and and I don't think that I'm uh, making a mistake in the way I interpret it, even though there are no words. I think if other people see it, they're going to understand what's being said there. And I think that's uh, part of what makes him an excellent director. He, he had an excellent reputation besides this film. Yeah. The next film, you had mentioned it actually earlier, and I want to move on to it, and that's Zeffirelli's Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, many of our listeners, and I'm, uh, I'm sure, are familiar with this film. When it came out, it was remarkably popular. Of course, it was also a miniseries. Uh, I remember watching it as a young person. And what I want to key on, at least initially, uh, keeping with the theme of, um, of Mary, is that same scene, uh, though Zeffirelli handles this a little different here, and I won't steal your thunder, but Zeffirelli allows Mary to take the lead in communicating that message in his film, Jesus of Nazareth. How does he do that? Well, you're right. There really is a contrast between the way it's handled in Pasolini's film, that Mary actually has to learn uh, this uh, this theme from Jesus, that uh, doing the will of the Father comes first, comes before family, comes before everything else. And you actually see her in the process of learning this, kind of the hard way. But in Zeffirelli's film, uh, Mary is the one who makes that statement about, uh, you know, the the family of Jesus is really the people that that do what the Father wants. Uh, So she she already knows it at this point. She's able to present it like an evangelist to other people. She doesn't have to learn it. And I think that's that's part of the Catholic uh, position. Maybe the first one is, is more of a Protestant kind of way of looking at Mary. As I said, that's presented as what's called an anti-Marian text uh, by some Protestants. Uh, but in Zeffirelli's film, uh, by the special graces she had, uh, you know, knowing about uh, how she would have Jesus, spending all that time with her, with him early on, hearing his teaching for many years, even before the rest of the world did, uh, she, she already knew it. She was already on the same page. And that, that's a Catholic position, and Zeffirelli was a Catholic, and he's he's trying to to present a film from the Catholic perspective. Yeah, and we talked a little bit, we don't need to go into it here, but we talked about the uh, the individual flaws of both these directors in their personal lives and so forth. Of course, not unique in, in the industry that they're in. We don't need to dwell on it, but uh, I, I will want to pick up on it again later when we get uh, to a, recent, a more recent film again, Mel Gibson's film, which I also think was a wonderful film, uh, but its message, of course, now is more challenged by... Uh, some of the recent uh, revelations regarding uh, the, the director. But let's come back to that. I want to stay with Zeffirelli's film for a moment, because he deals with another uh, issue, actually a couple, but let me let me deal with this first one. And that is Jesus' birth and, and Mary's uh, a trial, struggle with Jesus' birth. This is a somewhat dynamic question in the Church today. I don't know that it uh, draws a lot of attention, but I've certainly had uh, discussions around uh, the degree to which Mary, uh, without sin, may have struggled through the birthing process. And, and Zeffirelli offers his own perspective on that. Whether he's, in fact, trying to uh, send a message, we don't know necessarily, but he clearly takes a position by virtue of the way he presents that particular scene. Enlighten us a little bit about that. Well, one doesn't see the birth of Jesus in Zeffirelli's film, Although, on the other hand, one does see Mary being brought on the back of a donkey uh, towards the uh, the stable uh, to, to deliver Jesus, and uh, she's clearly in discomfort. And so I guess he's trying to say that she would have gone through some kind of labor pains. And it seems to me that that's, that's uh, permissible within uh, Catholic theology. It's, it's still something that's under discussion, and it was under quite a bit of discussion in the 50s, uh, and never never reached a definitive solution uh, but I do think uh, that there's there's two issues involved, and uh, I do have a Mariology degree, and one of them is the one that you mentioned, speaking about uh, the increase in labor pains as a consequence of the fall of man. I mean, there were other consequences of the fall of man. Hard labor, for example, in the fields is, is a consequence of the fall of man, according to the Bible. Uh, but... Uh, in the uh, Old Testament, it actually says, I, I'm not a Bible scholar, but Bible scholars have told me, it says that the pains of labor will increase, which sort of implies that there would have been some sort of 
pains of labor involved, even uh, apart from the fall of man. Uh, the other thing, I think, is not something about Mary or about labor or about the fall, uh, but it has to do with Jesus himself. And uh, we do want to be clear that while we're talking about a divine person, we're talking about a divine person who becomes fully human, which means that he has a human body made up of material substance. And so uh, we don't want to uh, present his humanity in, in some kind of an illusory, illusory way, uh, suggesting that it wouldn't have any interaction with Mary's material substance. I mean, if it was a, a human body with material substance, it seems that it must have uh, in some way. So I, I just want to say that we don't want to uh, undercut the humanity of Jesus when we're talking about the uh, special graced nature of the, the birth. Right. Michael, sticking uh, with Zeffirelli's film uh, for at least one last point and others you may want to raise, you talked a moment ago about the humanity and the, the portrayal of the, uh, the humanity of Christ. Of course, this comes out in film. It's one of the great advantages in film that we talked about, uh, advantages over perhaps the spoken word in many cases. And uh, certainly that comes out uh, uh, very poignantly in the, the scene around the crucifixion, both with the Blessed Mother and with, with Jesus himself. Uh, talk a little bit about how Zeffirelli achieves what many people... Um, uh, uh, indicated was a, a remarkable accomplishment in in how he portrayed the crucifixion without going over the top, which of course uh, uh, Hollywood is like to do on occasion, uh, but nonetheless uh, portraying the the genuine suffering uh, that our Lord endured and the, uh, the the trial that our Blessed Mother had to go through at the same time in witnessing that. Well, I would agree with you. He he did not go over the top that as far as uh, showing the details of the Passion, the Crucifixion, he's really extremely restrained that, uh, you know, all the, all the blood and the violence and uh, the agony, um, those in, in reality were, would have been much more pronounced than what was shown on the screen. Although, on the other hand, uh, I actually saw this film when it first came out, and they showed it at my high school, it was a Catholic high school, John F. Kennedy, uh, it came out right after the president was killed, so they named it for him, but it was originally supposed to be Immaculate Conception High School. Uh, but it was a Catholic high school, and they showed this film that the first year it came out. They showed it to uh, the entire uh, class. And I remember watching the crucifixion and just thinking that it must have been like this re in reality. Uh, one of the techniques that I've noticed since is that uh, there were a lot of use of facial close-ups especially on Jesus, uh, but also on Mary and, and the other people present there. But I think the, uh, the close-ups on the face of Jesus were, were extremely uh, moving. Uh, the um, way that he communicated some things with Mary are kind of interesting. At the, the very end, she's uh, almost in hysterics, and uh, mm -hmm. you actually see that in some other films. For example, one that came out of Italy uh, around the year 2000, that uh, Mary is in hysterics by the cross. Yeah. Excuse me, and, gentlemen. Uh, you yeah. have a caller, Mary Ellen, on the line. Hi, Mary Ellen. How are you? Hi, how are you? Good. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Virginia Beach. Well, hello. What, what, can, we, uh, what can we respond to for you this evening? Well, I was calling about uh, talk. I, the conversation has been so uh, much fun to listen to because uh, I loved the religious films. And actually, uh, Jesus of Nazareth is my all-time favorite one. Uh, I found Jesus, Robert Powell's portrayal of Jesus as such a compassionate and approachable type of, uh, of Christ figure. But I also loved Olivia Hussey's portrayal of Mary. I really did. And especially at the scene when you talked about when Jesus is taken down from the cross, I could really understand that, that anguish, mother anguish. But in relationship to the birth, um, in talking about her being discomfort and whether she really had uh, labor pains, even if she didn't have labor pains, I think she would have had some discomfort as a human being from the pressure from the you know the pregnancy, and would have had to have some idea that it was time, you know. So I think there would have been some type of discomfort to let her know that the time was near. Yeah, that uh, seems to be the um, even in scripture that you know, like the time was near. 
Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, and of course I defer to Michael. Michael has the degree in Mariology, but uh-huh. uh, most especially, aside from what appears to be a fair amount of evidence, I think the point you raised, Michael, about the humanity, um, the the association of Mary with all mothers, right, and mothers who've obviously gone through the experience, uh, their association with the Blessed Mother uh, would somehow be, I don't want to say diminished, but, but perhaps... Uh, confused if we believe that Mary, in fact, uh, experienced nothing by way of the discomfort that is normal to the birth, uh, birthing process. Well, you know, one thing I recall coming across in my studies was uh, something that some orthodox theologic theologians had uh, speculated about Jesus. Apparently, it's, it's pretty much a dogma uh, for, for those people. And uh, they don't believe that he had a naturally incorrupt humanity. Okay, um, I mean, he, he could catch colds and things like that. And so uh, if one is going to say those kinds of things about Jesus, then certainly they would, would carry over into Mary or other saints who, who received even less of a fullness of grace than, than Jesus as God become man. Yeah. So, Mary Ellen, this would be your favorite all-time, um, I'm going to say, a Christian film, because it wouldn't necessarily live uh, limited to Catholic, but would this be your favorite, Jesus of yes, Nazareth? it is. It really is. Yeah. I, I have to say it is mine, too. I uh, uh, watch it at least once every couple of years. I'll take it out and, and, and re-review And there are always, always things you miss, you know, or, or, or you're reminded of, oh, yes, I remember that years ago, but I hadn't caught that particular uh, and actually, you mentioned my favorite film on Therese, which was the 1959 one of The Miracle of Therese. <laughs> I really, I did like uh, Leonardo DiFilippis' new one of uh-huh. Therese, but as you said, I found her a little bit overly pious. Yeah. You know, uh, and not approachable. Yeah, exactly. Well, that well, was did my. You, did you see his rendition of John of the Cross? I did. I did. Oh, and I, I think that's that wonderful. I thought was superb. Yes, I agree with you. I thought that was wonderful. In fact, we have it sitting on the table between us here this evening. Mm-hmm. But uh, I agree. I thought that was wonderful, and uh, I have that in my library. And another one, because there's a Carmelite, uh, I will bring that one out occasionally. And I think it does a wonderful job. Uh, he did a masterful job of, of, of portraying, of course, the different characters, uh, the, the lead actor. And, yes, uh, yes. Uh, did you have and a- I'm looking forward to seeing the new one on Edith Stein. Yes. I haven't seen that yet. Has the professor seen that one? I haven't. Are you talking about the seventh chamber? No, no, no. It's the. Um, it just came out recently, and it's and the one who plays Edith Stein is the same actress. Yeah, who Maya Morgan. Mary in um, Mel Gibson. I haven't oh, seen it, but I saw it is chamber. available now okay. from Ignatius Press. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to seeing that one also. Well, Mary Ellen, we're going to have to have Michael back when that does uh, uh, come out, and he's had a chance to see it, and we'll have you back <laughs> to offer your opinion on it as well. We want to thank you very much for calling this evening and, and sharing well, your thank perspective. Thank you for having such a wonderful shows, and I've been passing the news around uh, to have people try to uh, at least listen over the Internet or whatever, because it really has been wonderful, you know, well, these uh, shows. Thank you. We appreciate, we appreciate that feedback, and we appreciate your calling in. All right, thank you, and God bless. God bless. Bye-bye. Well, I want to move um, to a, a theme that we picked on just a moment ago, but uh, uh, in the interest of time, I don't want to move off too quickly without uh, touching on this, and that is Mel Gibson's film. Now, Zeffirelli's, I think we agree, a wonderful film. I have to offer my own perspective on Gibson, and, and all, honestly, it has nothing to do with uh, the, the, the unfortunate personal details of Mr. Gibson's life that revealed themselves afterward, but I did think in this particular film he may have been um, a little bit uh, Hollywood with the portrayal of some of the more violent scenes. Of course, the film is largely about the crucifixion, so um, for me it didn't work quite as well. It's almost like the, uh, and I hope nobody's offended by the analogy, but it's almost like the early films where you have two uh, people who uh, have great affection for one another, ideally married, and you see the scenes of the draped clothes throughout the room, and then a closed door. And, of course, the, the image speaks for itself, and you don't have to go any further than that. And I found that Zeffirelli handled this otherwise very uh, horrible experience of the crucifixion in somewhat the same way some of the violence is hidden, um, whereas Gibson was a little more overt with it, I thought. 
I would certainly agree with that, and that's kind of typical of Gibson. Uh, actually, when you study film, uh, they have uh, something that they call the auteur theory, and uh, that's that uh, scholars, critics try to look for techniques that are kind of typical of a director that uh, is a way he makes his stamp on any film that he makes. And for uh, uh, for uh, Gibson, this uh, over-the-top kind of graphic violence is, is a part of his uh, the films he's directed. I, I actually kind of use the phrase torture porn, yeah. and uh, that's something you also hear in cheap uh, horror movies, too. Yeah. And I, I would say uh, he certainly does things better than uh, the grade B horror movies, yeah. but, uh, but he kind of drags even his better films down to that level with this, this excessive violence. Yeah, and I want to offer, just to close that out, my own perspective on why I think it's not as effective, and that is, in the crucifixion, there is not just the physical violence, that in and of itself, which I don't think anybody needs to be educated on, uh, to the extent that uh, that, uh, that film attempted to do it. But there's also the interior a trial and challenge that Christ went through, and we have to be given some room, I think, within our own imagination, to understand just how uh, horrible that interior trial must have been for him. Um, and I just found Zeffirelli's film left that playing room a little, a little more. I'm sorry, you mean Gibson's film? Gibson's film went over the top. Zeffirelli's, I thought, left a little more playing room for the imagination on the interior trial. Michael, I want to close out with one topic, and I suspect it'll take the remainder of our time, but you and I discussed it, and I don't want to miss out on it. And that is this idea that you had shared with me, that there really isn't a Catholic genre in films, uh, a, a, in music, for example, in literature, as we discussed. There is a deliberate and identifiable portfolio of Catholic uh, uh, literature, music, art, that's not necessarily true in films, is it? I would have to agree with that, and I would have to say I sadly have to agree with that. I think maybe part of the reason goes back to what you said early on about uh, the film business being entertainment. And these other things we're talking about were always considered art. You know, sculpture and painting and music were always considered art. Uh, but film was considered the seventh art, yeah. and uh, and it really should be uh an artistic medium, and I think that that's the problem, that uh, if people just uh, limit it to, uh, you know, cheap entertainment, uh, something to spend time with at night or, or on a weekend, uh, that it really loses that. And uh, if it's elevated to, to the point at which it can portray the human condition and, and grace and uh, God's work in uh, salvation and, and the Bible stories, right. Uh, that at that point it becomes something much more important and something much more valuable. I do have to agree, I don't think that uh, Catholics have come forward in this regard, uh, even Catholics who have uh, have done some things, like Zeffirelli, he was Catholic and he wanted to present Catholic things, and uh, mostly he worked in the opera, uh, but he did do a couple of films that had religious themes, one about St. Francis, and then of course this great film, Jesus of Nazareth, but um, he didn't uh, didn't make a point of it, and, and other people the same way. And uh, even as far as organizations go, uh, there are some, you know, family theater with uh, Father Peyton. They, they're not as uh, prominent as they used to be. Lux Vita in Italy now. There are pockets here and there, but uh, very little uh, that's that's comprehensive and that's influential. And to me, I think this is uh, Jesus speaking to us now, I would like someone to do this. Yeah, you know? well, I, I'm going to present that challenge to our audience, either for the, the members themselves, our, our listening audience, or perhaps uh, relatives who may be involved in uh, more artistic endeavors, or for their children who may be thinking about cinema as a, a career. I, I, I think uh, you're right that, that uh, uh, we ought to lay out that challenge. Of course, uh, uh, Pope John Paul II did in his letter to artists he laid out the challenge for Catholic artists to recapture the culture and to present the message. As I had shared with you in literature, uh, writers who I've uh, read and, and they're thinking about their artistic responsibilities, was never to preach. It was never to let the medium be exclusively the message. In other words, they are not uh, apologetics through literature or through film. But using the medium to communicate the breadth and the beauty and the 
the interior aspect that I raised a moment ago uh, of the Catholic faith, I think, is a great challenge to our listeners. Uh, so those who may be thinking about script writing or or going off to Hollywood to study the art uh, of film, it's a great challenge to lay before us that we think about what is the role of the church in film, and ought there not to be a genre around Catholic film? Well, with that challenge, I'd like to close us in prayer, and again, uh, I'll defer to our Blessed Mother and ask her intercession for this most important challenge that we've laid before ourselves regarding uh, a role for Catholic uh, film. O most blessed flower of Mount Carmel, fruitful vine, splendor of heaven, blessed mother of the Son of God, immaculate virgin, assist us in this our necessity, O star of the sea, help us and show us herein that you are our mother. O Holy Mary, Mother of God, Queen of heaven and earth, we humbly beseech you from the bottom of our heart to help us in this our necessity. There are none that can withstand your power. Show herein that you are our Mother, O Mary, conceived without sin. Pray for us who have recourse to thee. Sweet Mother, we place this cause in your hands. Well, I want to thank our listeners and invite you to join us again next week when Francis Harry and I will pick up again on St. Teresa of Avila's interior castles. And until then, God bless.